from John 20, which we already read. After the sermon, we'll sing in response hymn 31, Christ has risen, hallelujah. He is our victorious head. Christ has risen from the dead. Brothers and sisters of our risen Lord Jesus Christ, you know, it's hard to imagine what it must have been like for Jesus' followers after he died, such a horrific death on the cross. Oh, sure, we could be one of those armchair critics. We could just say, well, they should have known. How often did Jesus not predict that he would, even that he had to die? And why were they so surprised when he rose from the dead anyways? He pretty much told them he would. It's easy for us to criticize. But my guess is that we would have been no different had we been around back then. Just just imagine what it must have been like. You're still reeling. You're still trying to come to terms to comprehend that Jesus, the Messiah that they were waiting for for so long, that he was actually crucified like a common criminal. Now this, hearing all these reports of an empty tomb, I'm thinking we'd be right there with Thomas, saying, sure, I'll believe that when I see it. Well, thank God that we have seen it. Oh, maybe not with our own eyes, but through the eyes of the many who did see their risen Lord. The Apostle Paul, in his letter to the Corinthians, reminds his readers of Christ's many appearances as sure proof of his resurrection. Listen to how he writes. This is the gospel, writes Paul, that I preached to you. That Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. That He was buried and that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. Notice how He repeats that. Not so subtle hint. They could have known, you could almost say, that ought to have been enough. But should you need further proof, He continues. He, that is Christ, appeared to Peter and then to the twelve. He even appeared to more than 500 people at the same time. Some of them are still alive, Paul writes, implied, don't believe me? Go ask them. He also appeared to James and then to all the apostles and finally to me also. You want proof? Here's some hard evidence that Christ really did rise from the dead. All those people saw him. And then we today have even fuller revelation. We have the Holy Spirit's witness to us in God's Word. So yeah, it can be easy to criticize from our armchairs. But the fact is that many who lived when Jesus died and arose simply didn't understand it all, as John felt the need to explain. 
They did not yet understand the Scripture that Jesus must rise from the dead. Well, what about you, brothers and sisters? Do you understand that Jesus had to rise from the dead? Do you believe without a doubt that he did? And before you start thinking, what a stupid question. Of course I do. Ask yourself this. When was the last time that you thought about whether it is your sure belief that Jesus really did arise from the dead that Sunday morning? Because the question is extremely valid and important. Because remember this, and this is from what Paul wrote after giving all that proof. If Jesus Christ has not been raised from the dead, your and my faith is in vain. It is empty. It is useless. And not only that, if Christ didn't rise from the dead, we are still in our sins. And so today, we will join Thomas and the other disciples in that upper room and we'll be reminded of this great fact. Jesus Christ arose from the dead. And we can believe it with as much certainty as if we ourselves had put our little fingers into the holes in Jesus' hands. They saw the empty tomb with their own eyes and they saw Jesus himself. They needed to see the risen Lord to believe. Well, so do we. We need to see, not with our eyes, but with the eyes of faith that our Lord has risen. He arose. He arose. Hallelujah. Christ arose. So I preach to you the word of God. I'd like to use this theme. Thomas is left with no doubt that Jesus Christ arose from the dead. We'll see two things. We'll see, first of all, Thomas's confusion, and secondly, Thomas's confession. You know, as I read through John 20 again, and I even had it when I was reading it now this afternoon, it's, I just love these Easter morning stories. I don't know if you do as well. You know, and each, each of the gospel writers tells the story from a slightly different perspective. But what they all have in common is that they are very believable. They're very real. We are given a glimpse into the, character, the different characters of the people involved. We get all kinds of detail that you almost wonder why it's there. And this all helps us to relate to them. And all of this adds to the authenticity of the story. This really happened. And so before we get to Thomas, let's be reminded about 
what a strange and exciting and incredible day this, that first Resurrection Sunday was. And it all began very early. According to John and other authors as well, Mary Magdalene was the first to arrive at the tomb, and this was before, um, while it was still dark even. And she's shocked to see that the stone that covered the opening, it was taken away. It wasn't there. She can't keep this to herself, so she turns to tell the others. They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, she says, and we don't know where they have put him. She's horrified. He's gone. Who could have taken him? Now what? Well, Peter and John, they just have to see this for themselves. And then we're told about that famous race. I've often wondered why this detail is included. I'm thinking John wanted it on record forever that he won. He was there first. While I can't say for sure, of course, I see this as one of those examples of a story that can be verified. As I said, all these historical details are for us so that we can believe it really happened. Maybe these two guys grew up, um, grew up together. Maybe they've been racing each other since they were little kids. As they're going towards the tomb, we can imagine them looking at each other, and then the one walks faster, the other walks faster. Soon the race, the race is on. John gets to the tomb first. He's a bit more hesitant, so he stops short, kind of peers inside. He sees the linen cloths. And then comes the Peter, a barreling along and, and not wanting to be outdone. He doesn't stop. He just runs right in. Totally in line with what we know of Peter, isn't it? He's brash. He speaks and acts before he thinks kind of guy. And he too, he sees the strips of linen cloth lying there, but he also saw something else. He saw the face cloth that had covered Jesus' head, that it was folded up, and it was lying apart, separate from all the other wrappings. Again, the detail. Seeing Peter's inside, John, and here he just can't help himself, John that guy who won the race, remember? The one who was first to the tomb. Second time he says it, he also goes in. And he sees it all. And then we read, he believed. They believed. John wrote how he saw and believed. And then in the very next breath, we read John's editorial that they did not understand Scripture yet that Jesus Christ had to rise from the dead. And so, done with that, the disciples went back to their homes. In the meantime, Mary is back at the tomb. She's still upset. She's crying. And as she wept, she had a look into the tomb herself, she doesn't only see the cloths 
but two angels sitting where Jesus' body used to be. Again, we can picture Mary, can't we? In between sobs, she talks with the angels and turns around and finds someone standing there and then talk about a case of mistaken identity. Not realizing it was Jesus, she thinks he must be the gardener. So she says to him, Look, sir, if you have carried him away, just tell me where you have put him and I will get him. And Jesus revealed himself to her with one word, Mary. To share with you, um, I said even when I was reading this portion before, I got goosebumps when I read that. We're given such a vivid picture, aren't we? We can feel for Mary. She's distraught. And then one word Jesus says to her, Mary. She's overjoyed. She clings to him. She says, teacher, a Rabboni. We can just sense the waves of relief that must have flooded over her. Jesus, though, tells Mary not to cling to him, but to go and pass on the message to his brothers. So Miss Mary excitedly goes back and, and she exclaims, Guess what? I have seen him. I have seen the Lord. What a day. I've always wondered, maybe being male myself, I don't know, I wondered if the brothers... They were a bit jealous at that point. That Mary got to see Jesus before they did. Either way, it's not important. I know. And they didn't have to wait long for their chance to see the risen Lord. At least most of them. It is the evening now. Again, we're painted the picture. We're, we're, it's the same day of the first day of the week and we can, we can just imagine how um, they might have been gathering together and excitedly discussing the empty tomb and the resurrection appearances as they filtered in. We're told how the doors were closed. Windows were shut. These guys were afraid. Fear of the Jews. Suddenly, Jesus appeared and stood in the midst of them. Peace to you, he says. Fairly common greeting at the time, although of course loaded now that Christ is saying this peace is, that he's bringing. And you can just imagine the surprise. Jesus, is that really you? After Jesus greeted them, he showed them his hands. He showed them his side. It is Jesus. Then they were filled with joy when they saw it really was the Lord. And I know, I know, maybe I'm getting too caught up in this, but we haven't even gotten to Thomas yet. But brothers and sisters, this background to what all happened before Thomas finally got to meet Jesus is important to understanding this story. We are told so many little details all 
so that we might believe. We saw what it took to convince those who found the empty tomb that Jesus really was alive. And then he appeared to them himself, and they saw with their own eyes the wounds in his bodies. And then the Bible makes it clear, then they believed. But not all were there in the upper room that evening. This is where our text begins. Besides Judas, betrayer, who no doubt was also not there, we are told that for some reason Thomas wasn't there either. Was he sick? Maybe he was too distraught. After his Lord was crucified, so that he couldn't just, he just couldn't be around people. Who knows? Speculating is rather pointless. Fact is, he wasn't there. The other disciples, having seen the risen Christ, when they run into Thomas next, they excitedly tell him, We have seen the Lord. Yeah, right, says Thomas. I won't believe it unless I see the nail wounds in his hands, put my fingers into them, and place my hand in the wound in his side. And it is this demand for proof before he will believe it that has earned him the nickname Doubting Thomas. A term that has lasted till today. To describe a skeptic or a person who refuses to believe anything until they see proof. But I'm not convinced that this title is entirely fair. Thomas wasn't there when Christ showed the others his hands and his side. Had he been, it's not that hard to imagine that he would have believed it too, along with the others. Oh, sure, his boldness for demanding the proof stands out. But was he that different than all the others who doubted the resurrection as well? So let's try and get to know a bit more about Thomas. We hear from him two other times at least, prior to this in John's Gospel, where we can learn about our friend. The first time we hear of him is in chapter 11. This is just prior to Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. He had left Jerusalem because of threats to his life, and now, after hearing Lazarus was sick, Jesus wants to go back to Judea. His disciples object. The Jews wanted to stone you. Are you crazy? And you're going back there again? But Jesus knew Lazarus was dead eventually. And he insisted they go to him. Seeing Jesus was determined to go, Thomas says to the other disciples, let's go too, so that we may die with him. From this comment, we get our first glance at Thomas's character. He's a bit of a pessimist. I'd say, a skeptic maybe. 
You know, those glass half empty rather than glass half full kind of guys? Maybe a bit of a worrywart. Someone who tended to be anxious. I read one author who described him as a bit of an Eeyore. Maybe that's why I'm defending him. I can relate. I have a little bit of that character too. Pessimist is probably more accurate a description of Thomas than a doubter. That would explain why he's probably thinking, if, if we can't talk him out of going, we may as well go along and die with him. But there are redeeming traits here too. Thomas shows much courage. It is easier for an optimist to be loyal, for he expects all things to go well. Thomas doesn't seem to expect things to go well for them. And yet he remains loyal to his Lord. The second time we hear of Thomas is in John 14. Jesus was telling them of his coming departure. I'm going to prepare a place for you, and you know the way to where I am going. That's when Thomas pipes in and says, Lord, we don't know where you are going, so how can we know the way? Again, we see a little bit of his pessimism, or maybe, maybe he's just being realistic. Even though Jesus told them they knew the way, Thomas is the one who has the courage to point out that they don't even know where he is going. So how in the world can they know the way? And again, we can see that Thomas doesn't want to be separated from Christ. His heart was broken when he heard Jesus was leaving them. He was shattered, especially since he didn't understand what Jesus meant when he said he was going to his father's house. And then the worst fears of a confused and maybe pessimistic Thomas came true. Jesus did die. And in such a shameful way, Now what? See, the type of doubt that Thomas shows is the kind that is found in someone who has gone through a lot of disappointments. All that Jesus had suffered, could he still be the Messiah? Thomas loved his Lord dearly, and he doesn't want to be blindsided again. He had believed. He had showed his devotion to Jesus Christ. And now, he's gone. This time, he's not going to be so gullible. No chance of him being fooled again. And now what the disciples are saying, it's just too good to be true. How can it even be? And so he demands the most solid evidence he can think of. I want to see the wounds from the nails that were in his hands. Actually, I want to put my finger where the nails were. Yes, I even want to put my hand in his side. Then I'll believe you. 
You see, Thomas wanted to have no doubt that it was the same person that hung on the cross that is now appearing to the disciples. It's no figment of their imagination. It's not a ghost. It's not some kind of hallucination. And in a sense, he is no different than any of the other disciples. Earlier we hear that Christ showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Thomas here represents the doubt that many have and do and, 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 and will face when it comes to the resurrection of our Lord. And we too have to pause and ask ourselves, do we really believe that our Lord Jesus Christ not only died on the cross, but that he arose on the third day? Can we see the marks in his hands? Are we convinced of this? Our story continues. The following week, they are back again in the upper room, gathering on a Sunday. Again, the doors were shut, and again, Jesus simply appeared in the room, greeting them in the same way. Peace to you. And then we can almost imagine Jesus' eyes finding Thomas. The message is loud and clear. Peace to you too, Thomas. You were pessimistic. You doubted. But you need to confess and believe in me. This will bring us to our second point, where we see that Thomas confesses his belief in his Lord. Though Jesus was not physically there to hear Thomas's demands, he knows. It must have been so humbling for Thomas when his Lord came to him and said, Put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Here you go, Thomas. You asked for it, so now do it. Put your finger here and here. You see, Jesus does not ask Thomas to believe without any kind of proof. Rather, he accepts that Thomas is skeptical and, and challenged the doubts that he had with that same evidence that he gave to the other disciples. Earlier, Jesus told his disciples, Let not your hearts be troubled. You believe in God? Believe also in me. In much the way, much the same way, Jesus now tells Thomas, Do not be unbelieving, but believing. Yes, the ball's in his court, so to speak. Thomas must now make a choice. He has to throw away the unbelief that still is nagging at him. 
He renounce your unbelief, Thomas, and believe. There's no middle ground. Nothing is different for us, brothers and sisters. We who live some 2,000 years after Christ's resurrection are told the very same thing. Don't continue in your unbelief. But believe. Do you believe, brothers and sisters? Jesus Christ felt the anguish and the torment of hell so that we never have to. He was forsaken so that we might never be forsaken. He was wounded, think the marks in his hands and in his side, so that we might be healed. Jesus died, taking on himself the punishment for your and my sins. And he arose, he conquered death, so that we might live. Oh, my dear friends, do you believe? Now, we are not actually told whether Thomas actually did put his fingers and hands into Jesus' wounds. The text seems to suggest he didn't need to. The offer was enough. After Jesus tells him to believe, Thomas exclaims, My Lord and my God. And actually, this is quite a remarkable confession. This is the first time we hear of Jesus being referred to as my God in this way. You see, Thomas not only shows his faith, his belief in the resurrection of Christ, but he gets to a deeper underlying truth. This is nothing else but a revelation of who Jesus Christ is. Not that long ago, the risen Jesus himself had said, I am ascending to my Father and your Father. And then notice he says, to my God and your God. Jesus called his Father my God. And now Thomas and the disciples recognize that Jesus is one and the same. Jesus is God. The very one who seemed to doubt the most now makes the greatest confession about Jesus Christ who rose from the dead. My Lord, my God. And it is interesting, we look at John's Gospel as a whole, it began with those very well-known words. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God. And then a bit further on, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Do you see? 
John's gospel begins and now ends in this wonderful truth. Jesus is God. It is like the light goes on for Thomas. My Lord, my God. And it's good to think about this confession some more. In many ways, I don't know about you, but when I keep looking at it, it seems to almost appear out of nowhere. We might have expected, Jesus, you're alive. Or, my Lord, I'm so sorry for doubting. But remember, this, this is happening eight days after Jesus first appeared to his followers. Well, that's eight days where we really don't know what was going on, but we can sure imagine what must have been going through Thomas's head this past week. Jesus is alive? It can't be. But the others seem so sure. Are they mistaken? Suppose they're not. Is it possible that Jesus really is alive? What would that mean? No, it can't be. Can it? And then he might have started thinking in some of Jesus' words. Jesus said once, He who has seen me has seen the Father. That's a massive claim by Jesus. And didn't Jesus also say once, Most assuredly I say to you, before Abraham was, I am, using God's covenant name. As one of the disciples, he would have witnessed Jesus forgiving the sins of the paralytic. Is it possible? Only God can forgive sins. No. And then when the time came and Jesus revealed himself to Thomas, it, it all became clear. And he cries out, My Lord, my God. That's one other final thing I'd like to point out about this confession brothers and sisters, and that is that deeply personal nature of this confession. Thomas does not say, our Lord and our God, or Jesus is the God, or anything like that, but he says, my Lord, my God. We can and should learn from this. Because we know, don't we, a lot about Jesus and his work. But let's not just confess these, what we could call general truths about him. No, it needs to be much more personal. It needs to be much more intimate. We need to be comforted that we, me and you, belong to Jesus Christ. He is my Lord. My God. Jesus Christ is not some concept out there. He is your and my Savior. Believe it, brothers and sisters. We're near the end. 
After Thomas makes his confession, Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Though it might, might seem like it at first glance, this response is not necessarily a rebuke by Jesus. Nor is Jesus saying that those who believe without seeing have some kind of better or stronger faith. No, it is more like he is simply stating a fact. Like the rest of the disciples, Thomas needed to see in order to believe. And we can be encouraged that Jesus himself recognize how much harder it would be for those to believe who haven't seen it with their own eyes. Because we, along with many of John's readers, we have not been privileged to see, to touch the resurrected Jesus. But that does not mean we don't have any evidence at all. Of course not. We have eyewitness testimony. The apostles and Paul do just that. John also refers to this in his gospel, the last two verses we read. Jesus did many other signs that are not written in this book. And this likely includes other signs after Christ's resurrection. But what was written down was so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in His name. All of this, including how Jesus appeared to Thomas, was given to us for our benefit. So instead of being critical of Thomas's doubt and thinking his faith was somehow flawed, let's thank him. Thank you, Thomas. What a privilege you had to meet and to even touch the risen Savior. And thank you, because when I see how Jesus helped you when you doubted, I am encouraged to bring my doubts to him too. So we can find ourselves invited, no challenged this afternoon, brothers and sisters. Believe like Thomas. Because this passage is not so much about Thomas as it is about Jesus Christ. For we, as well as Thomas, are left with no doubt that he has risen from the dead. And then be encouraged by these words written by Peter, another eyewitness. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, he writes. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. 
And then he continues and notice the, the similarities to our passage. Though you have not seen him, you love him and you believe in him and you are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your soul. My brothers and my sisters, believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that He has risen. Hallelujah! And then you too will have life in His name, full of inexpressible joy. Yes, believe. And you too will receive the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Amen.